you inherited from a, a parent or a grandparent. Maybe, maybe you have a stamp collection. Maybe you have a, a piece of pottery. Maybe you have some comic books. I, I don't know what you collect. Uh, but have you ever had something and, and you thought it was old and you thought, well, maybe it's worth something. And then you discover the, the value of it. I don't know if you've ever watched the show Antique Roadshow, uh, where they go on the road and they, they take these appraisers around it, and, and people bring in sometimes the dumbest things. I, I mean, like, you, you wouldn't even want this in your house. And then all of a sudden they, they bring it in and they say, well, you know, my great-grandma gave it to me and it was from her grandfather and I think he served in the Civil War. And you're like, this ratty piece of cloth? And then they appraise it and they go, it's worth $100,000. Uh, or I've seen some paintings or some other uh, types of, of pottery or uh, plates or fine china, all kinds of things they get in there and appraise. Toys even from the early 1900s, little electric trains, and you think, oh my goodness, it's a wonder nobody threw these things away. Uh, my dad used to have some baseball cards, and he said he had uh, certain rookie year cards of famous players, and they used to just put them in the spokes of their, their bicycle, and then they threw them out when they, they were worn out. And uh, now if he would have saved them, uh, he, he'd have a nice retirement just from baseball cards. Sometimes we have things and we don't know the real value of them. And I think sometimes for those of us that are Christians, we, we have salvation and we talk about it and we, we know what it means. But we don't grasp the depths of the value of it, the great riches of it. We can say words like justification. We can say words like redemption or even words like grace. But do we grasp the value of what Jesus Christ have, has done? That these words have, have meaning and they, they convey to us what our great and, and wonderful God did. Is salvation something that you have? And if you have it, are you growing in an understanding of the value of what you have. That you can still sit back and and marvel at how great our God is, that He would do such such a thing as these for sinners such as us. Sometimes we're afraid to contemplate sin because it exposes who we are, but but as sin exposes who we are, it also exposes the greatness, the the immensity of what God has done. Because God in Jesus Christ has taken away our wretchedness. Just want to ask this morning, and this is sort of our, our, our main focus of the morning, it's what is salvation in Jesus Christ? What is it? And we're going to walk through this passage, and this is honestly probably one of uh, you know, if you want to rank top five passages that you should know in your Bibles, uh, this one should, would come in somewhere in that. I'm, I'm not saying we should rank Scripture, but, but in terms of importance, in terms of, of centrality, yes, all of the Bible is the Word of God, but this is one that, that we really all should know. We should be familiar with it. We should kind of know it like we know the back of our hand, so to speak. So what is salvation in Jesus Christ? First, salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ. We need to understand that that salvation is not something I earn. 
It's not something that I'm worthy of. It's not something that I achieve. My act of faith is an act of receiving. It's, it's an act of trust. And, and in a sense, while I do it, in a sense it is also passive in that the riches that I get in salvation, I don't get them because I reach to God and, and grab them through faith. It's because I open and receive them. It is the work of God that accomplishes these things. And salvation comes to me through faith. Just as you might have a glass of water that you want to get out of your faucet. And the water is what will quench your, quench your thirst. And the water is what will pour down your throat in this utter refreshing. And, and how do you get the water to your mouth? It comes to you through the faucet. It comes to you through the cup. And you don't give credit to the cup. You don't say, wow, what a wonderful cup that quenched my thirst. You give credit to the water. In the same way, we don't give credit to our faith, per se. We give credit to what our faith receives. The work of Jesus Christ. So salvation comes through faith. Notice verse 21. We see that God's righteousness is revealed in Jesus' work. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So the righteousness of God has come. It has been manifested. It is present. We could say maybe it is available or displayed. The righteousness of God is is the saving activity of God where he justifies those who have faith. In Jesus Christ. And we'll explain justifies in a minute. But but recognize that, that this righteousness is an attribute of God and an act of God. Oftentimes in the Old Testament when it speaks of God's righteousness, it speaks of it in conjunction with his saving actions. That he is good and gracious and, and does what is right, not in a judging sense, but in a he saves his people because he's made promises to them. So you'll see here, when it comes then to the New Testament, we are to think of it as a fulfillment of the old. So notice it says that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So what you see is that the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, uh, that's, a, that's a nice way of referring to all of it. Sometimes they just say the law and the prophets. Uh, other times in Luke he'll say the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. But it's a way of saying the Old Testament. The, the Old Testament bears witness to what God has done in Jesus Christ. It promises God's saving righteousness, His activity, where He will take sinners through the Messiah and declare them to be righteous and forgive them of their sins. And when Paul says this happens then apart from the law, what he is saying is that no one is saved through their ability to keep the law. The law, as we saw last week, brings condemnation of sin. Look at verses 19 to 20. Now, whatever... Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, 
and the whole world held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. What does the law do? It says to you and I, we're sinners. None of us keep the law. And through the covenant of the law given at Mount Sinai, we have the commands of God, but we don't have Jesus Christ coming at that covenant. We have it looking forward to, testifying to, prophesying, bearing witness to what is to come. But we're not saved through the old covenant. We're saved through what Jesus did. And even in the Old Covenant, as they came to worship God, they were to look forward to what the Messiah was going to do. And so we are not saved by our ability to keep it. So he says this righteousness of God is manifested apart from the law. We're we're in the New Covenant now. God is bringing these things to a fulfillment. There there is a difference, even though there is a, a continuity, that all of these things pointed to and looked forward to what God would do in Jesus. And this righteousness of God then is received through faith. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So this righteousness has come. And how do we come then to experience? How do we get it, we could say? How do we uh, come to enjoy it and be a part of the people of God? It is through faith. It is received through faith. And the Jews at Paul's time would have said, you know, how do we, how do we become the people of God? They would have said, well, you have to keep the law. And they would have said to the Gentile person, well, you want to be a part of God's family, you've got to be circumcised, just like Abraham uh, was circumcised. You want to join the family? Take on the, the yoke of the law, so to speak. Become Jewish in that respect. And then you'll know the living and true God. And Paul is saying that with the fulfillment of the Lord Jesus Christ, how does one... Righteousness from God that is not our own. You confess that you are a sinner. You you put your trust in Jesus Christ and He alone saves. The great truth of Scripture is that God alone saves. And He does this through Jesus Christ alone. And we receive this only by faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul can say then there is no distinction. Look at verse 22 through 24. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, uh, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, in Paul's day, the the biggest aspect of there is no distinction would have been for these tensions between Jews and Gentiles. There were, before Paul went around to the synagogues to preach the gospel, there were oftentimes Gentiles in the synagogues who were considered God-fearers, who honored the living God. 
who maybe didn't go down to the temple, hadn't partaken in circumcision, but they, they were hearing the scriptures and they were acknowledging them and they, they feared the true God. And they were looking for the Messiah. And you'll remember from the book of Acts that, that as some of these Gentiles start getting saved, the, the early Christians who are Jewish, start to there starts to be this tension between them. Well, we've always been circumcised. Don't these, don't these Gentiles who are now part of God's family, don't they need to be circumcised too? You know, that, that's in the Old Testament. That's a command. Shouldn't they, shouldn't they be doing it if they love God? And it subtly creeps into a sort of legalism that says, well, if you don't do it, maybe you're not saved. Maybe you don't belong to God which suddenly creeps in and, and the danger in and, and places like the churches of Galatia was there were people running around saying, hey, if you don't get circumcised, you're not saved. That's good that you had faith in Christ, but, but finish the job now. Take on all of these things. And Paul rebukes that and says, no, we're not saved through works of the law. We're, we're saved through faith in Jesus Christ. And there is no distinction. It doesn't matter if you're Jewish or a Gentile. The only way you're ever saved is through faith. How was Abraham saved? Paul will make the case in chapter 4. Through faith. Saints in the Old Testament were saved the exact same way that you and I are, through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, they did have the ceremonial aspects of the law they were supposed to do as obedience, but that was to remind them of what was coming. We've got this wonderful privilege. Now, we look back and we say, that's what was coming. It's here. Jesus has displayed it, the righteousness of God that was testified to. It has arrived. And it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what's your background. It doesn't matter what's your race. There is no distinction. Everybody's a sinner. And everyone who is being saved by the grace of God is only being saved through Jesus Christ. And they are only receiving salvation through faith in Christ. You can't come to know the living and true God through some other religion can't come to know the living, true God through some kind of outward performance of, of good deeds. You can't hold to a, a different set of, of core Christian truths. Well, you believe Jesus is uh, the Son of God. I, I believe He's an angel. But hey, we still believe in the same God. No. There is no distinction here. There is only one way. And there is only one people of God. You'll notice this has been part of Paul's larger argument. So he says in verse 23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You could go back to, to Romans chapter 3, verse 9, where he says, uh, Both Jew and Greek, are, is one better than the other? No, we're all under sin. We're all guilty of breaking God's commands, rebelling against Him. Then you can go on and see in verses 29 and 30, Or is, the God, the God, or is God the God of the Jews only? Is He... Not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, Gentiles also. Since God is one, He will justify the circumcised by faith uh, and the uncircumcised through faith. It's saying there is only one way to salvation. And, and God is not just the God of a unique particular set of people. He is the God of all creation. 
and any human being throughout all creation who comes to Him through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they will be saved. And this message is to go throughout all creation. Why? Because God is the God of all creation. In our day and age, the the selfishness is not so much Jew versus Gentile. But sometimes, for those of us that were raised in the Western world, there can be an element of pride. An element of, we've had the Gospel. We have civilization and all of the good things that came through the, the spread of Christianity. And the temptation can be to think that we're better than churches around the world. That we're superior. Even inside the church, even in America, you know, we still have tensions of race. And I know things like racial reconciliation can be a, a buzzword, but it should be a real concern that inside the church, we who belong to Jesus are all one in Christ. There is no distinction. It doesn't matter what language you speak. Do you think God only speaks English? I mean, really. You know, if if we started in the future to have some people that spoke uh, other languages in our church, wouldn't that be kind of awesome? It might be awkward for for communication. Uh, We might have to learn a little bit of Spanish or French or whatever language they speak, Swahili. They might have to brush up on their English because that's just, you know, you're, you're in a country that is predominantly English. But you know what? We're Christians first. Americans second. We are, we are one in Christ first. That there is no distinction. That, that we are not better. That we are not necessarily smarter or wiser or have a deeper understanding of Scripture. Because we all come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to receive salvation. We are all equal at the foot of the cross. And you could think about the ways that Paul uses this in other places. Ephesians chapter 2, talking again about this tension between Jews and Gentiles. And, and, and it, was, it was really a, kind of a, we would say, a racial tension. They didn't like each other in many places. Ephesians chapter 2.14 says this, For he himself... Jesus, for he himself is our peace, who has made both of us, who has made us both one and had broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. There is no distinction in the body of Christ because we are all declared righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. Let me just give you one example from history, uh, the way that this worked itself out. William Wilberforce, you might be familiar with the name. Uh, He was influenced, he probably wasn't saved by uh, John Newton, but he was influenced by John Newton, uh, who wrote uh, Amazing Grace. John Newton had been a slave trader before he got saved. William Wilberforce was involved in politics. And when he got saved, he he was tempted and, and thought about leaving politics and doing something, you know, for the Lord. And, and John Newton and others convinced him to stay in politics. And William Wilberforce led the, the efforts in the British Empire to outlaw slavery. Over almost a hundred years before we fought a bloody civil war for it. 
And one of the things that motivated William Wilberforce was Christian truth. It was the gospel. It was specifically justification by faith alone. That if I am saved by faith and have nothing to bring before God, if all of us are sinners and need the saving grace of the Jesus Christ, then all of us are equal at the foot of the cross. And so there should not be slave trade in England. In the British Empire was his argument. And he was very influential with overturning and in shifting uh, the culture against it. Why? Because he stood fast on the gospel. He stood fast on justification by faith alone. That, that grounding truth which saves us also will impact the way we live in the world. The way we think of other people. The way we treat them. The gospel that saves is also a gospel that transforms. And when there is transformation, that will, that will radiate itself out into the world around us. It was justification by faith alone that drove William Wilberforce. Do we have that kind of view of the gospel? That it, that it not only is something that saves us, but we, have, we understand the value of it. And, and it shapes our, our whole way of thinking about the world. That it impacts how I think about politics. How I think about ethics. How I think about the value of other people. How I treat my neighbor. Salvation is by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Salvation comes through Jesus Christ as an act of God's grace. Justification is a gift of God's grace. Look at verse 24. And again, this is, this is picking up that thought of, of we are, there, there is no distinction. We are all sinners. And then it says, and are being justified or and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, I said we'd explain justification. Let me just kind of give you a simple definition. It means to be declared righteous. If you're a, if you're a visual person, if, you, if, if word pictures help you, think of a, a judge in a court of law. And, and just to kind of spruce it up in your mind, picture him wearing a long black robe as judges do. And picture, it, picture us in England for the fun of it. And they put on those goofy, white, gray, powdery wigs. And, and he has his gavel. And, and the verdict comes from the judge, not guilty. But, but even, even more than that, the verdict comes as righteous. A declaration from the judge. The, the person is standing before God, the judge, and we are literally guilty as sin. And through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and through our our act of trusting in Jesus, God the judge does not look at us as sinners, but looks at us through Christ and declares to us who are guilty, innocent, righteous. You have a good, positive standing before the judge. It is a legal verdict. When we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, when I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, God by His grace 
declares me righteous. Not because I am righteous. So often we think that we have to bring things to God. You know, God, here's what I've been trying to do for you. And I, and I know I'm not perfect, but here's some, some things that I've tried to do to obey you. I've tried to be righteous in some ways. Will you now declare me righteous? We bring nothing to the cross but our sin. Or nothing to the courtroom of God but our sin. And God still, even though we're guilty, declares us to be sinners. It is by grace. God did not have to send Christ to pay the penalty for our sins. I hope you understand that. God didn't have to do this. Did God have to sit in heaven and say, well, they've sinned. I'll send my son to die for them now. But in his grace, he does that. He didn't have to put Christ forward. God was under no obligation to set Christ forward so that we might be justified. God could have brought down the the guilty verdict. He could have given us what we deserved. A great way to remember the word grace is favor extended where wrath is deserved. Favor. Well done. I am pleased with you. I delight in you. Not because of who we are, but because of what Christ has done. Favor extended where where what do I deserve? And and I really deserve these things. The wrath of God is fair punishment for my sin. Uh, If you like acronyms, take the letters G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. That's another good way of, of thinking it. But we are never to think that God has saved us because we are worthy of salvation. I think this is sometimes the trap that we, that we fall into in the 21st century. And there are even a lot of churches and Christian speakers out there who will, who will talk to their audience and, and they will say things that are true, like God loves you. But, but then they will, they will kind of turn this to say, not only how precious are you, but... But God really needs you. God loved you so much that He he needed you. And so He sent Christ to to die for you. God didn't want to be alone without you. We kind of sort of psychologize what's going on in the heart and mind of God so it makes God sort of emotionally dependent. That that we are so special that that God is, is, forgive my language here, but God is sort of like the needy girlfriend that can't live without the person. God was doing just fine on His own as the Trinity. Certainly, we have value being made in the image of God. But sin corrupts that. And God did not have to extend love and favor and grace to us. God was not in some kind of desperate relationship where I, I need them so bad I, I'll do whatever it takes. God's grace comes from, from His self-sufficiency. 
that he does these things for no other reason than his own kindness to show the extent of his character. Does he love us? Yes, absolutely, in Christ he loves us. But he doesn't love us because of things inherent to us. Most of us, in our relationships, for example, when you first fell in love with your sweetheart, maybe she caught your eye. Or ladies, maybe he was that, that ball player in high school. He really was strong and handsome. And we don't know what happened to him now, but no, just kidding. But there was something in the person. Maybe they were kind. Maybe they were, they were gracious. They were just a good, nice, normal human being. And there's nothing wrong with that in human relationships, to have something in them that, that attracted us to them. But it isn't that way with God's relationship with us. There wasn't something inside of us that, that attracted Him. Woo, look at that Tim guy over there. He's pretty hot. And forgive me for saying that. I shouldn't think that way. But, but you understand what I'm saying. There's nothing like, like oh, that, that person's such a good person. I could really use them. I, I really need a relationship with them. I'm just not complete without them. Oh, salvation teaches us that God didn't need us. That God didn't have to save us. This is what makes the, the riches of the grace of God such an abounding riches. What have I done for it? Absolutely nothing. It wasn't like I was worthy of it to begin with and then I messed up and so God said, well, I'll give back to you because you're a, a worthy person. No. You see, sometimes we don't understand the value of what we really have. We're afraid to talk about sin because it makes us look bad. Yeah, it does. But it makes God look abounding in His love. It, it magnifies His greatness. Who thinks like this? Who acts this way? God does. God, in His magnificent grace, extends to us favor that we literally do not deserve in any way. One of my fears is sometimes I think we give lip service to the idea that we don't deserve the grace of God, but we don't let that thinking filter into to every corner of our lives. That all that I have from God, I do not deserve. That everything is a gift, most especially Jesus Christ. And, and sometimes the, the danger, even in the Christian life, even as we start to, to obey God and follow Him more, the danger is we can get really prideful. God saved me and look at what I'm doing for Him now. He must have needed me. Look at how He's transformed me. Can, can turn subtly in our lives from, from being, look at what He's done to transform me, to say, look at who I am now. I'm so proud of myself. I'm so proud of what I'm able to do for God. Isn't it great that I can follow Him now in a way that I never could? And maybe we give credit to God for what He did to save us out of the mess, but then sometimes we think we're going forward on our own steam, on our own power. The Gospel teaches us 
that we have no power in and of ourselves. And even any transformation and obedience that we have is the outworking of the Holy Spirit. The gospel should keep us dependent upon God. It makes the, the walking of the Christian life an act of, of living by faith, of, of dependence upon Him day to day, of, of a continual open trust that all that I have, I have literally received from Him because I have nothing good in and of myself. Isaiah says, all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. Filthy, utter, despicable, grimy rags is the best that I have to offer God. Notice then we have the language of redemption in our passage. So we've been justified by grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So if the language of justification puts in your mind the the image of a law court, the language of redemption should put into our minds imagery from the ancient world of the slave market, where someone is enslaved and they need to literally be bought with a price. And what is that price? The blood of Jesus Christ. And what am I enslaved to? I am enslaved to my sin. The, the Old Testament picture, the, the greatest example, illustration in the Old Testament is the Exodus. Israel was in bondage to Pharaoh. And she wasn't going anywhere. She wasn't just going to pick herself up one day and say, well, I'm done working for you, Pharaoh. We're going to head off. When Moses comes, even with the Word of God to Pharaoh, and says, God says, let my people go, what does Pharaoh say? Who is this God that you speak of? Why should I listen to Him? Kind of a, who cares? These people are my people. They belong to me. And God says, no, they're my people. My firstborn son, which I am going to redeem. Exodus 2.23 says this, During those many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. What did they have to offer God? Nothing but a cry for help. And it says in Exodus 3, The Lord said, and He's speaking to Moses, I have surely seen the afflictions of My people who are in Egypt and heard their cry because of their taskmaster. Because of their slave driver, He says. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land. God is going to redeem them. And He says that in Exodus 6.6. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Exodus 15.3 You have led in your steadfast love. This is God's people singing now. It's the song of the sea, Exodus 15. You've led us in your steadfast love, the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength and of your holy abode. You want to know what hymn they could have sung at the song of the sea? I have been redeemed. Since I have been redeemed. And they have to maybe change the lyrics to say, since He brought us through the water. Since He did the the Passover lamb. 
since He hardened Pharaoh's heart and, and liberated us from our bondage. But who did the work? Who gets the credit in Exodus 15 at the Song of the Sea? Do the people of God get the credit? Does, does Moses get the credit? God is the Savior. The Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, is the mighty Savior who saves in His acts of righteousness. And now, God's righteousness that was testified to in the law and the prophets has been manifested to us as Jesus Christ is put on the cross. Do you understand how much your redemption cost God? The shedding of the blood of the Son. And God didn't have to do it. The third thing this morning is that for the accomplishment of salvation, God put Christ forward as a sacrifice. So Christ is a sacrifice. Christ's sacrifice is a propitiation. And, and I put that word there. We don't often use it, but, but it's a very specific Concept. So there are three images in this passage. One, the image of the law court, justification, declared righteous. Two, the image of slavery and the slave market, redemption being brought out. And the third is the image of propitiation. And if you trouble, have trouble defining this word, put this image in your mind. Think of this thought. The Ark of the Covenant. You remember Sunday school? If you don't remember Sunday school, do you at least remember Indiana Jones? The Ark of the Covenant? And in the tabernacle and later the temple, the Ark of the Covenant would be in the Holy of Holies. And, and once a year, the, the high priest would walk in through the holy place and into the Holy of Holies and he would take the blood of a goat and the blood of a lamb and he would sprinkle it over the Ark of the covenant. And that was the act of propitiation. That God would see the blood that was shed and He would not visit His people with wrath because they would also take another goat and they would lay hands on it. It was the scapegoat. And then they would send it out of the community. And that was a symbol of saying, hey, the wrath of God, it's been taken away. That sprinkling of the blood is the propitiation, the place of propitiation, or the symbol of the place. The picture of propitiation is the idea of the wrath of God being turned away by exhausting it. By paying for it. There's another word, expiation, which just kind of means the removal of wrath. But propitiation means it is removed by being paid for. That if there was no sprinkling of blood of that animal to symbolically stand in the place of the people, where would that wrath of God go? It would go out onto all the people. You think of even the Passover lamb and, and blood needing to be spread over the door frame. Why? So that the angel of God would pass over that house as he visited the nation uh, and Egypt with wrath in that night. 
The concept is the removal of God's wrath by the bearing of the weight of sin. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified by blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And then he says that he has accomplished this in Hebrews through Christ dying on the cross and ascending up into heaven into the true temple of God. Propitiation is made by the Lord Jesus Christ bearing on the cross all of the judgment for my sin. If I believe in Jesus Christ, how do I know that I will go to heaven? How do I know that I will not be punished for my sins? His grace has done it all, as we say. Tis mine but to believe. Jesus Christ on the cross bore God's wrath for my sin. All the punishment that you and I deserve through eternal suffering in hell was poured out onto Jesus in that agony on the cross. Which is why Jesus can say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he is in those moments bearing the wrath that God has for sin. And it is exhausted. If you think of pouring out a cup, there comes a moment where the last drips of water are poured out and and you shake it and there's nothing left in that cup. Christ has so sufficiently borne the wrath that God has for sins that those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, there's nothing left in that cup for us to bear. No sin of my own that I have to bear. The punishment that I deserve has been taken by the Lord Jesus Christ. What I deserve, Christ gets. What Christ deserves, being raised up in righteousness, which does happen to Him, is then also what I get. 2 Corinthians 5.21, speaking of that great exchange that goes on, for our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. We who knew no righteousness have had this declared to us in the same way that, that He who knew no sin had it declared upon Him in those moments that you are paying for their sin. And if you believe in Jesus, He has paid for your sins. And you have the righteousness of Christ. Because God has propitiated His wrath in Jesus. The cross of Christ shows us the character of God. Think of this. God in the Old Testament is slow anger. Propitiation does mean that God has anger and wrath to sin, but, but one of the hallmarks of God's character is He is so slow to anger because He is patient and abounding in love. He says to Moses on Mount Sinai, when the Lord passed before Him, He proclaimed the name 
The Lord, the Lord, God, merciful, gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love, in steadfast love and faithfulness. How is God slow to anger in our passage in Romans? It says, because of His divine forbearance, He passed over former sins. What does this mean? It means in the Old Testament, all of those times where God could have judged them for their sin, God passed over their sin. He, he held it off. He had a divine patience, forbearance. He was slow to anger. That, that the blood of goats and bulls don't really cleanse. That was to be an act of faith looking forward to Jesus. And He waited. He waited till Christ was on the cross so that He could judge the sin of those saints in the Old Testament. And they were saved by the cross of Christ just as much as we were. They were saved in what God was going to do. And in patience and forbearance, He waited and held off, not judging them, but then judging Jesus Christ for their sins. He was slow to anger. He's also righteous. Look at verse 26. It was to show at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God here maintains His justice and His righteousness. That passage in Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord God, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, keeping steadfast love for the thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions. But then it says this, but who by no means will clear the guilty. Now that's a problem when we're all guilty. Because who can God save if we're all guilty and still be just? How does God do it? How does God maintain His standard of righteousness, of justice, that that sin needs to be judged, but at the same time show that beautiful side of His character, that, that forgiveness and that love and that steadfast faithfulness, that tender compassion for His people? He sets forth Christ as propitiation so that sin is judged in Christ and we see the holy and righteous character of God and it is not compromised. But we see the forgiveness of God in that He justifies those who have faith in Jesus Christ. He declares people righteous who are not righteous. And in the Old Testament... That's considered an abomination of justice under normal circumstances. God warns judges, do not pervert justice and declare the guilty to be righteous. But God then takes sinners and He says, you're a sinner, but but I declare you righteous. So how is God not guilty of breaking His own word? He is just in setting forth Christ. But also, the gracious one who justifies, and it is a real justification you will stand before God on the day of judgment and, and in a sense, you won't even have to stand there because he's, he, I've already declared you righteous the moment that you got saved. You have been saved from the moment that you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as the only hope of salvation? Do you understand the riches that you have in this salvation? There are many people 
even people that, that are Christians that think they're just not good enough in the eyes of God, and, and, and even some who, who think they're Christians that really have no sense of hope, no sense of comfort or, or confidence. You might talk to someone and say, you know, if, if you were to die today, uh, where would you go? And they might say, well, I think I'm going to go to heaven. And, and you might say, well, how do you know? And they'll say, well, I'm not really sure. I don't know. In Jesus Christ, you can know. Because when you believe in Jesus Christ, you are justified. In the Roman Catholic Church, they believe justification is an outworking, a process, and and you have to combine it with good things. So they say, you know, you have to believe in Jesus, but you also have to appropriate the righteousness of God inwardly. You have to do good things. And, And in this life, you never know if you have enough to go to heaven, is the thinking. And, and so you're constantly trying harder. The Bible says you know. You have been justified. You are declared righteous. Let me end with this thought. Sometimes in the Christian life, we wrestle with the guilt of sin. Sometimes it's a good guilt. You know, it's the Holy Spirit prodding us. Sometimes it's a bad guilt in the sense that our own feebleness keeps us from trusting God. Sometimes maybe the evil one stirs up thoughts in your mind. Satan stirring up these thoughts. Well, you sin. And God's really going to hate you now. And, and how, how dare you think you can go back to God and, and fellowship with Him? Don't you know how guilty you are? And we, we weigh ourselves down with this heavy burden. Not in a, a good way where we're fleeing to the cross again, but in a in sort of a, a conflicting uh, lack of, of confidence, a, a, a weakness, if you will. Justification says that you have been declared righteous the moment you believe, and you will always have that verdict. God will always be your heavenly Father now. You will always be able to go to Him, to stand in His presence, Come back to Him and say, God, uh, in my daily life, I did blow it. But you are no less or more righteous before God because He has given you the verdict. Should there be an onward growing in our behavior? Absolutely. But when we mess up, we are not less righteous because we have the assurance from the courtroom of God. We sing in the hymn that Jesus Christ shows His wounded hands and names us as His own. That is the riches of your salvation. Some of us, by nature, are very timid and fearful people. We've dealt with a lot of pain and angst, and it can lead to anxiety. And it can lead to just kind of an inner turmoil, an inner unsettledness. When you come to God, Know what justification by faith is. And let Christ be your confidence. Let's pray this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank You for this day. We ask that You